So I kicked off this conversation with Jonathan telling him how I was shopping for incense <laughs> because that's what I do prior. That's my warm up to getting started for any episode is I go shop for Auden ends things. But welcome to Developers Eating the World. Um, before I introduce Jonathan, I want to um, mention one thing that he reminded me about. Not a lot of people know that this podcast is both on YouTube and on wherever you get your podcasts platform in audio format. So uh, if you're interested in tracking down some of the episodes where you can get access to the QR code behind me to get even more information and watch the crazy expressions I make to, to things, um, go and search for Developers Eating the World or Sweet Code HQ on YouTube. All right, so my guest today refers to himself as the tiny DevOps guy. <laughs> that is your right. handle. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, Jonathan, and uh, also tell me a little bit about tiny DevOps. What does that mean? Great. Thanks, Chris, for having me on. Uh, yeah, so my name is Jonathan. I call myself the tiny DevOps guy, uh, not because I'm tiny. I'm actually pretty tall, uh, but because I like to really work on helping small teams, tiny teams uh, get the benefits from DevOps. You know, I, we, we hear all these amazing, sexy stories from Google and from Netflix and Amazon, how they're doing these amazing DevOps things. And I love to hear those stories. I think we all do. But then when you when you work on a team of three people, you're like, we can't do Chaos Monkey or we can't do whatever, but can we still do DevOps? And, and so that's what I really like to focus on is help these small teams, um, maybe even a solo person, a single person project get the benefits that, that they can get from DevOps. And is the typical audience the developer then? So uh, it can be. I, I, I have a lot of developers on my mailing list, for example, but they're always, uh, I can't say always, but the, the feedback I get from most of them is developers with a an operations sort of slant or, or, or mindset. So talking about uh, packaging software, deploying software, continuous deployment and integration, and those sorts of things. So I don't focus very much uh, on algorithms and you know what's the shortest way to write write code. That it's interesting, but that's that's dev. That's clearly dev, right? So I, I focus more on on uh, the operation side where dev and ops meet. Got it. Yeah. The reason I ask you that is is I feel like developers are not learning enough about or thinking enough about how their code makes it into production. And so it is very interesting, like you said, even in small teams, having that operational mindset of, yeah, you have to get into production. And from the SRE side, when it's in production, you also have to have to be a part of supporting it. I'm going to challenge you a little bit, though, on the nature of of DevOps and um, applications. So, and actually this is, I wanna see if this resonates with you. One of the things I say a lot in my talks is that your software delivery chain is your application of applications. So it is the thing that you build, you give to your developers to make sure that they can deploy code efficiently and effectively. So I try to kind of conceptualize the DevOps environment or what the DevOps teams deliver as an application in a way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think there are broadly speaking are two valid ways to approach DevOps. And by DevOps, I mean the cooperation of development and operations. So that concept, 
Uh, and the two, the two ways that I've seen work the, the best are where you have the development team and the operations team literally merged into the same team. Or, or maybe you have a, a, an operations person on the dev team or something like that. So there's, there's, no, there's no team separation whatsoever. Uh, and and that, a lot of people think that that's the only way. The other common way I see DevOps work is where the operations team essentially provides a self-service platform to the, to the developers. And that sounds more like what you're talking about. So the developers aren't worried about how much disk space is on the server and things like that. But they also have the freedom to do their deployments and their rollbacks if necessary and their debugging. They can do that without depending on another party. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. And it gets to the next thing, which I think seems to be um, implicit in DevOps, but not explicit. And, you know, or maybe it's rather radical, radical, which is to some degree, DevOps implies automation. Is that fair? To some degree, I would say yes. Uh, I, I actually like to challenge that point a lot. Uh, more with thought experiments, though, than with actual like boots on the ground sort of approach. And, and, and the way I like to do that, just as an example, is to uh, imagine some process that, you're, that you want to automate. How would you do it by yourself? Uh, and a simple way to think about this is humans are Turing complete machines. Anything a computer can do, we can do. It might be slower, but we can do it. So let's do the first version manually. Let's take QA, for example. Use a human run checklist with post-it notes if you have to. Get it working. And then once you have the steps defined, then work on automating them. And I think a lot of people focus so much on automation, they kind of forget the goal is to get software released. <laughs> and they just automate things, uh, for, for example. So, so that, that's one sort of a thought experiment I like to use sometimes uh, with teams that are, that are so hyper-focused on on automation without the goal in mind. That's great because yeah, automation for the sake of automation usually means you're gonna automate bad processes and you're just gonna make your bad faster. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. I, I, in, the, in the trend where quality assurance has morphed into quality engineering, which is a more strategic function, I've noticed that the teams that I've uh, interactive with there also have a very deliberate effort of doing manual testing because they write better test cases because they do manual testing because they have a better understanding of the entire environment. Right. The other side of automation is project management, planning, etc. And early days of DevOps, you would get comments about uh, why do we need DevOps? We have Agile. Like, isn't DevOps just Agile? Um, what happened to Agile now that people are embracing DevOps? My perspective, they're not in conflict with each other at all. And actually the benefits of Agile, uh, maybe this is uh, also like kind of assumed that you are running PIs, you're planning sprints, you have a backlog, you're doing all of that good stuff. What is your thought about where Agile is in the age of DevOps? Agile, that, that term, of course, was really a summary of many things that were already happening in the industry, from extreme programming to Scrum to, uh, I guess, continuous integration happened a short time later. But you know, when the Agile Manifesto was, was written and signed, people were already doing Agile 
They just didn't have a name for it yet, right? The same thing happened, of course, with DevOps about 10 years later. There were people who were doing development operations with great cooperation and great great effect. They just didn't have a name for it yet. So I, I see that I see that Agile really sort of started the ball rolling. And there's been sort of a snowball effect since then of new practices, new ideas coming along. There's still what I call Agile. They're under the umbrella of Agile, um, the, the mindset and you know the, the four principles of Agile. But there are new applications of it, and that's great. Uh, if we if we if we go back to Agile from 2001 and pretend that that's like some sort of holy grail, and we just stick to that, we're never going to advance, right? The whole point of Agile is to always be improving, so we should be improving on Agile as well. DevOps is one piece, one small piece of that entire thing. One thing with Agile and in in the practices there, I'm even leveraging it with my expanded team inside of Splunk, where what we do most of, sometimes we create code. We do, we develop, but they're usually in the form of like prototypes and plugins. A lot of what we do is content creation. And we found that having sprints, having standups for our content creation also works really well. And I like how you put it where at the end of the day, if what you're concerned about is moving faster in a higher at a higher quality, you're going to naturally conclude and and arrive at these practices. What would you say to an organization who goes from say monolithic development all the way to embracing CI/CD, but hasn't yet adopted agile practices for their project planning and you know their backlog? Yeah, so I, I see, I think there are, there's probably more than two, but there are two areas of agile that I like to focus on. One is what you call project management or project planning. And the other is what I call technical practices. And, you know, back in 2001, when, when the agile, I don't know if it was called the summit, but when they, when they signed the agile manifesto, there were clearly people who, who focused on both of these different areas in the room together. Scrum is a great example of a, of a methodology that focuses on the, the project part of agile. And they, they intentionally left out all the technical practices like test-driven development and pair programming and CICD that didn't exist yet. But they left that those sorts of things out of Scrum on purpose because they wanted it to apply not only to software development, but to other things like content creation. And they didn't want to bore and confuse managers who are trying to decide, should we use Scrum? They didn't want to, they didn't want to confuse them with all this technical mumbo jumbo, this Star Trek talk, right? So they, they made an intentional separation. And in fact, if you if you go to Amazon, you can read the summary for the first book on agile software development. And the summary says you can use Scrum just to help your team adopt XP, extreme programming. So it was clear from the beginning that the originators of Scrum ex- expected people to use Scrum and the technical practices that come from XP, from, from what's now called DevOps, and so on and so forth. So there's those two pieces. There's the, the at the top layer, uh, if you will, there's the project level. At the lower level, there's all the technical stuff about solid principles and and don't repeat yourself and, and all those fun things that we could talk for, for years about. All those technical things are part of Agile too. They're two parts. So I wanna ask you about something that I, I feel like is one of the biggest challenges when it comes to developers and sprints in agile methodology and scrum and all this stuff. 
And I guess I'll wrap it into a story. So when I'm not sitting in front of a computer in my basement on Zoom, I'm often at the park with my kids. And sometimes I have to awkwardly socialize with other parents. <laughs> Few of them I've gotten to know. One of them is very interesting. He is taking a legacy business in the auto industry and bringing technology. So enabling it with, with software. But he's starting from scratch. Like he's never hired developers before. This is the first first time. And I'm not the expert, but compared to him, I am an expert. <laughs> so I've been having conversations with him on like, how do they plan their backlog? How does he work with developers where he is essentially the product manager and he doesn't really understand how things are built. So he's still learning. Both are still learning. And last weekend we had this conversation about and his situation, by the way, if you've ever read the Unicorn Project or the Phoenix Project, it's very similar type scenario. Um, we had a conversation about commit versus delivering. So developer says, I am going to build these things. Now, the problem in his scenario is he's thinking of it 100% user perspective, not each individual thing, a part of building that functionality he wants. So he has to get better at that. But the developers also, if they say we are going to build the thing and it's going to be done in the next sprint, it should show up, right? So how, how do you balance that? How do you, because it's both like a, a personal being real with yourself on what you, you know you can actually deliver. I've seen some interesting scoring mechanisms, even with insights of some of our engineering teams. But how do you deal with that challenge of I say I'm going to build something? And it better show up. And if it doesn't, then it kind of questions the reliability of the whole process altogether. That's kind of a million dollar question in our entire industry, isn't it? You know, all this trying to, this, this ongoing debate between estimates versus it'll be ready when it's ready and, and all those sorts of things. It, 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 honestly, I have to say, I think it really depends a lot on the, on the maturity of the, the person making the estimates, the person involved in the coding. If I were the person working with this, uh, this, uh, parent friend of yours, uh, and he came to me and said, hey, I need you to build this thing. And I would say, I'm going to build this thing. My approach would be to, of course, build an MVP first or build the, the, the simplest version that accomplishes the minimum requirements. And then I would back, start filling the rest in. Um, that's so much easier said than done. I mean, we, we, we've all heard that a million times. <laughs> so in principle, it's, it's simple. In principle, you start with the most important things that provide the most business value, and then you work your way down, down the list. When you run out of time, hopefully you've accomplished the 20% of the features that accomplish 80% of the value. That's the hope, right? In practice, yeah, there's just so many little things to learn about. Uh, and it depends so much on the technical domain you're working in too. What features do I need? What features can I skip? What, how long does this feature take? Learning to estimate, I don't know. Books have been written on this topic. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I expected the million dollar answer. I wanted, I wanted the easy button. <laughs> you didn't give it to me. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because I, I, hey, I have to go back to the park and give this dude an answer. I, and now I, I got nothing. I, um, yeah. I, my answer to him was similar. I, I said that you know the maturity, the engineers that you hired are, they're, they're not junior, but they're on their path to manage, you know, becoming, that's what they want to become is management of a team. So their maturity 
on being able to say no to you is it might be lower because that's a skill set is is Definitely. being able to say no and clearly justifying you know why you can get done in in what sort of time frame but also to him he has to learn that his feature idea is not a it's not one ticket in jira it's probably 20 tickets <laughs> so his feature idea is an epic that gets broken down and and I mean, that this is the whole this is the whole reason we have backlog refinement, right? I mean, this is where, this is the whole reason we sit down with the stakeholders and talk about the features and work work this stuff out before the project uh, really gets underway uh, to discuss, is this is this feature you have in mind, is it a 20 minute feature or is it is this months of work that doesn't look like it at first? So that that's the first step towards that maturity is, is starting learning to have those conversations. Yeah. Yeah, and it really explains the value of having product managers who are better and scrum masters who are better at kind of rallying this. I know that as techies, it's it's hard to swallow the pill that there is a lot of like strategic in, in architecture and strategy stuff that has to happen before you can write code. And I think that that's where a lot of coding schools fall short because they don't teach that. Well, I'm curious because one of the things that I threw out at him, uh, it may have just been because I'm super excited about it, is feature flagging. Is can they leverage feature flags as a mechanism for breaking things into smaller chunks and then eventually turning on the whole big um, feature? Do you see wide adoption of feature flags? Uh, I see mixed adoption and I see a lot of confusion about it. Um, I, I've spoken to people who tell me feature flags are the worst, you should never use them. Uh, I don't agree with that, but I understand where they're coming from because I've seen feature flags used so poorly in some cases where they just never get cleaned up afterwards. And you end up with this, these huge piles of spaghetti code with these ifs that you have no idea if they're actually being executed or not. So th there is that caveat that if you use feature flags, you need to be careful and clean them up when you're done. But yes, I'm, an ad I'm a strong advocate for feature flags. Um, I, I love the simplest feature flag you can do is an if false. You don't need a framework. You just write your code. You write, hopefully write your tests around that code and then you wrap it in an if false. It won't be executed, but it's still in the code base. You can do your continuous integration. Your other developers can potentially modify it if necessary. And then when it's finally ready, when the front end piece is done or whatever else is done, you remove that if false or add a real conditional if user is in the United States or whatever it is you're, you're testing on, then you turn it on in that case. So yes, I'm a strong advocate for feature flags. Um, I've, I've introduced it at several teams uh, with varying degrees of, of adoption, but I definitely am a, I'm a fan. I like that. I, I, I would at some point like to get into a debate with somebody who who is opposed to feature flags because Again, what you're talking about is an information architecture slash just healthy practices in the environment of making sure that you don't make everything a feature flag and how you roll up your feature flags and all of that stuff has logic to it. It's not just, we have feature flags, so let's start using them. This is true for everything. If, if a development team has that mentality, then they're not going to be very good at instrumenting observability. 
They're not going to be very good at on-call schedules. They're not going to be very good at their consistency of providing data in or tags in their traces and spans. So it's it bleeds into everything. It's it's unfortunately not an op- option for whatever reason. I I feel like I gravitate towards that type of activity. Maybe there's a reason why I'm not going to use the term OCD, but I like to organize stuff. <laughs> Maybe that's why I might want my little incense thing. Uh, it's a Zen moment for me when I organize things. I like information architectures. I'm a certified taxonomist. So that kind of stuff I really enjoy, but I think others struggle to embrace that this is an activity that they also have to undertake and it's important. So I have not played the terminology game in a while. And I don't know if you've heard an episode, it's been so long the reason I kind of abandoned it is I was more or less getting the same responses for all of the, the terms, but it's still really fun. So the terminology game is where I throw out three terms for you. You give me your impressions. Could be a definition, could be whether you hate it, don't hate it, could be the realities of it, and we talk about it. Because you brought up Chaos Monkey early on, I'm going to start with Chaos Engineering. And my impression of chaos engineering. Yep. What do you think about okay. it? Just, just general. I, I, I love the concept. Um, I haven't done, a, I haven't done much of it. I certainly haven't done it in any formal sense. I would love to, I guess, working with small teams, I don't get to run into that a whole lot. We're still fighting much bigger fires before we, we get there usually. But yeah, I love the idea of, of taking down your servers and things keep working. And I try to design when I'm writing code or, or building services, I try to design with that in mind but I honestly don't test it with that actual chaos engineering, uh, those pro- approaches very often. I'd love to. I'm, I'm waiting for a, a, a good scalable in the sense of small scale. Chaos Monkey is a service that I can just say, go, go get this for a hundred bucks a month and, and plug it into your system. <laughs> That's interesting. I wonder if, well, so some of the synthetics providers I feel like could adopt that, but you do, you have, uh, and again, this is not promotional. So we have synthetics, but you have um, Gremlin and you have Virica. And I'm sure there's others being being developed right now. It, it's interesting that you, you, you just made me think of something related to this whole conversation, which is even the most disciplined engineer sometimes gets lazy. And that's something that you have to realize for yourself. And it was a coworker yesterday in a meeting who we were talking about DevSecOps and like building secure applications. And like he, he was saying, he comes from a security background. Even sometimes himself, he will write tests so that they pass because he wants them to pass. And he has to, he has to kind of call himself out on that and just realize that even in, in the thick of it, even the best are going to slip sometimes, which I think is interesting. Uh, I agree. In fact, I might go a step farther and say that the best engineers are the laziest engineers, uh, but it's, it's a two-sided coin. It's our laziness that, that drives us to automate things in the first place, but it's also our laziness that drives us to take shortcuts. And we have to be aware enough of our our future selves that we're going to cheat in the future. Don't make it easy now. <laughs> Put rules in place that don't let me cheat when I'm under pressure. Yeah, introspection. 
It's a, it's a yes. trait. Next term. Next term is a term that I almost always put in there. Um, I think it's because of my, I almost said love-hate relationship, but it's more of a hate-hate relationship. Uh, AI ops. I, I listened to a podcast a few months ago where, and somebody really defended that term. Uh, my, my, my visceral reaction is gross. Why are, we don't need another ops. There's, there's so many ex ops things out there. Get rid of it. Somebody made a valuable case. I, I don't remember. Maybe I can find the details and send you the link to include in the notes, but uh, somebody made a strong case for this term because AI is such a different comes from a, a more of an academic background than a, than a data uh, or than a, than a computer science background, that there truly are, at least in this person's view, uh, a distinction to be made. And so AI ops in this person's view is valid. I'm far enough away from that, that I can't verify his view. Uh, but I think I feel, I, I think my gut reaction is the same as yours. Gross. <laughs> I need a name and phone number of, the, of this individual. I'll find him. <laughs> you know, my my issue with the term is clarity. It it's it literally says nothing about what you actually do. If you were to come to me and you talked about self-healing, so systems that there's an incident and it takes some sort of action related to the incident for common problems like disk space full, restarting services, things of that side. Cool. That's not AI. So it's, it's, it's the broad nature of the use of AI. And I come from, from a very academic background where I was doing a lot of machine learning stuff. We still didn't call it AI because of the baggage related to AI and how you actually determine what is AI when usually it's just statistics. It's just really good statistics. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm heated up. I'm ready to I'll, have that. I'll find it for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, final term. What was my final term? Oh, actually, this is a comparison. Incident response versus incident management. So ITSM versus on-call. That's a great Question. So, I mean, I, so I, I, at the last two long-term projects I worked on, I set up an incident response process for teams that had none. Uh, you know, they, their, their, their process prior was crap's broken. Everybody stop what you're doing. Um, does it, does anybody know who knows how to fix this? And mostly sitting around looking at each other with, with dumb looks on their faces. So I suppose what, what did I set up? So I set up, uh, I, I took a, I took a page out of the, uh, the Google SRE book and set up an incident response process. We set designated a, a response uh, manager, kept a document as the incident was progressing. I suppose that's incident response management, right? Uh, according to the, those terminologies. Well, so, and I guess I'll, I'll tell you where this comes from. It, it comes from a place where people underestimate what has to happen when something breaks. So they underestimate what it takes to find the right person, what you need to give that person in order to resolve the incident, and then wait for things to recover. Because, they, because it's a, it tends to be a short window, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully it's 30 minutes and not five hours, but it all depends. Because they underestimate that, 
the typical response when it comes to on-call and incident response is I have a ticketing system. Something breaks, I submit a ticket for that broken thing, and that's ITSM. So that's your ServiceNow, your JIRA, whatever. You, you, you put a ticket, people get notified there's a ticket, somebody ex accepts the ticket in, in response. The flow of that is different than true incident response where you know, incident response, you're thinking about like out in the world outside of tech, you're thinking about roadside assistance and, you know, emergency vehicles and things of that. Side. That's incident response. The Carfax or your medical chart is incident management. It's, it's the audit trail. That's usually how I describe it. So what you just described, and I know what pages you're talking about <laughs> is uh, <laughs> actually, I actually had a customer who, who, it, and it bothered me, but it was also okay at the same time who came to me and, and said, all right, he, basically here's the pages. We want to do this. And that was it. It was like, well, well, you need to ask the first question, which is why. <laughs> and the second question was, like, are you ready? Are you, are you, are you even set up for this? Anyways, um, so that's usually how I'd, I, I describe it. What you were describing, of course, uh, I refer to as, as incident response versus ITSM. A lot of organizations put a lot of investment in their ticketing systems and they want it to work for everything. Or they're even worse than they use Excel spreadsheets. At least they're using something that's better than just yelling into a void, which I've seen happen many times. <laughs> yeah, that's rather, rather terrifying. So before we sign off, uh, anything you want to leave us with in terms of what you're excited about in DevOps in 2021? Wow. So I, I suppose this is broader than DevOps. I'm excited about this working from home thing, although I'm, I'm super excited about hopefully going out of the house again. I've been a a work from home advocate for, for a decade. But I was always, when I had the option to leave the house after my workday ended. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to this. Uh, I, I think the lockdown is harder here in Europe than it is uh, in the US. Uh, there's really, there's nothing open. There's no restaurants to go to. You can't go to the mall. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. That will make my DevOps uh, work days much more enjoyable when I can go have a beer with my friends afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, that's but uh, at, at, at the same time, um, you know, I, I think this is an exciting time as it relates to, to working from home, this flexible environment. I think so many companies have for the first time realized that oh, we actually can work from home and be successful. So it will be interesting to see once the lockdown is lifted worldwide, which companies decide to keep that flexible work from home, work from anywhere uh, sort of mentality. That, I know that's not DevOps related, but that it affects everybody, including DevOps engineers. <laughs>